Hello and welcome to the 250, the podcast where we trot around town in totally, absolutely not suspicious trench coats. I'm Douglas and with me as always is my co-host Jonathan. How are you, Jonathan? I'm fine, Douglas. Thank you. Very nice bit of alliteration that you did in the- Oh, yes. Sorry. Whoa. Yeah. I didn't actually- You mentioned that before. I didn't read it back. You're right. (laughs) I am- I am a- a- Literary genius. Poetic genius. Mm. If this is your first time tuning into the 250, we have taken a snapshot of IMDb's top 250 movies of all time as of January 2020, and we have been watching them from number 250 through to number one. In this podcast, we discuss our opinions, thoughts, and reactions to the movies within. Today's movie is number 104, Taxi Driver. Travis Bickle, a Vietnam War veteran living in New York City, takes on a night driving job to deal with his insomnia. Observing society from the outside, Travis's loneliness and disgust for others causes him to spiral. Taxi Driver is directed by Martin Scorsese. You know him, you love him. We've had him a great many times in the 250 already, but his, I don't know why you put that he's known for Taxi Driver here, but- Prove me wrong. He is. Prove me but- wrong. <laughs> uh, he's also known for Mean Streets and Goodfellas. And it is written by Paul Schrader, who is known for uh, First Reformed, Card Counter, and Affliction. Is Card Counter- Neither Jonathan nor I have watched Taxi Driver before. Is Card Counter that one with Oscar Isaac? Going to be honest, I did write that in like a drunken haze. It is Oscar Isaac. It is? Mm. Look at him. It's on my watch look list. At, look at how much fucking makeup he has on in this poster. Jesus Christ. He does. Yeah, man's plastered. Mm. Or, yeah, it's on my watch list because I just I love consuming everything that Oscar Isaac does. Consume. Out of the seventy-four things that they have of him on Letterboxd, I have watched ten of them. You getting there, bud? And counting. Yeah. Any day now. Any day now. Uh, what do you think about Taxi Driver? Douglas, I was terrified. I was terrified of this movie. I I'm Why? doing. Sorry, I'm doing the radio thing where I, I grab my mic and, like, lean back dramatically that cannot be heard. And all it just does is add, like, a bunch of squeaky, <laughs> terrible noises Sound. to my audio. Yeah. Let's get that one more I time. Doug's I was terrified of this movie because this is the incel movie. This is the-, the It is. The, yes. Uh, and I was like, oh, no, this is going to be the movie that incels, like, are like, whoa, which probably incels are like that. But, uh, Douglas, uh- uh, maybe for the wrong reasons. Hmm. I think um, I thought it was interesting. I think it was fun because our recent films, a lot of them have said something, but a lot of them have been quite upfront with what that is. And yep. this is not, it's not that deep, but there is some stuff that just requires w- one level of deeper thought mm. to sort of analyze this, which is, which mm. is nice. But also, I think I said this with um, Annihilation, it's also the kind of, like, film critique, like, film uh, theory crafting that a dipshit yeah. like me can do on the fly, as opposed to, yeah. like, when you watch some some of this shit back, you're like, oh, I, I guess that's what that could mean. Yeah, maybe. You sound like you know what you're talking about. I didn't get that at yep. all. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. It was a interesting- it was a fun story. And- Quite a quite a pretty movie as well, Douglas. Yeah, not a not a bad film to look at by any stretch of the imagination. Absolutely not. Michael Chapman doing a very good job on cinematography. Also did uh, Space Jam, John. Um, it's your chance. Do your dance. It's damn it. It's your chance. I was thinking, get your chance. <laughs> I was I was like doing. <laughs> I was just doing a loop in my head, and I couldn't. Remember. Yeah, so close and yet so far. Um, also, uh, did cinematography for another, uh, film that would tackle, uh, toxic masculinity and everything else in between, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese, Raging Bull, only a couple mm. of years, um, after Taxi Driver, um, again, starring Robert De Niro, so it's, uh, I think, evidently, in the 70s, Martin Scorsese had a lot of shit he wanted to say about the state of masculinity, I think, mm. and he was really- <laughs> Very allured to those kinds of stories, which Paul Schrader was evidently churning out as well. Mm. He seems very interested from other stuff that he's written, from what I can just see at a brief glance. Also very interested in that kind of side of being a man. Yeah. We won't I guess we won't talk to this story too much, but um as usual, Douglas, imagine. Imagine us talking about the story before the spoiler before zone. The, spoilers. the secret 
get excited, guys. The secret part of the podcast where we talk about <laughs> things that will spoil the movie. I thought this was very fun to look at in terms of like color grading and stuff. Mm. They really, who is it? It's like evil Wes Anderson. Loves the yeah, yellows and the yeah, reds in this movie. That's a good call. But yeah. it's all but it's all dark Great and rainy and um mm. I think like just doing everything at night, obviously. Like neon is always fun. Absolutely. It's never not gonna be fun. You and not not all the film, but especially well a lot. A lot of the film. I'm not gonna say like all the important parts of the film. Quite a few important parts of the film happen in the day, Douglas. But every now and then you're like, Man, that was a weird thing that just happened. Anyway, I get to go look at some nice nightlife in lovely New York, sunny New York City. Sunny, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, the the colours are great. Um, the, as you said, the colour grading is very intentional, I think, um, which, yeah, really reads. And uh, the uh, composer, um, Mr. Bern- Bernard Herrmann. Herrmann, that's it. Died right after he finished the score, pretty much. Oh, um, fuck. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very legendary composer by all accounts that I have found. You know, did Psycho, Vertigo, Citizen Kane. That's a lot of heavy fucking hitters right out the gate. But mm. yeah, very prolific composer who, yeah, got to do one before he kicked the bucket. That's a pretty good movie. That's a good one to end it on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fuck, it has got to be so good to, like... I think being a composer is, like, a dope job when you're, like... Oh, absolutely. 60... 64, he was. Mm. You definitely don't feel like you're, like, falling behind. You're like, oh. No. I'm ready to just keep on moving. Yeah. Absolutely. I was quite surprised when I looked it up on Spotify and realized the score is fucking an hour long. Did not realize that. Mm. Gonna be honest. Doesn't feel like it. No, I feel like all I really picked out of the score is that sort of, that jazz melody, which is used quite a bit. Mm. The big one. I think he's used like most of the time when he's bumming around at night, unless there's something exciting happening. Lots of, um, are they, are they like vase shots, Douglas? What do we call that? Where they're just like, here's some- Footage of New York, baby. Oh, yes. You have talked about this before. Yeah. I would call it like a uh, establishing shot, but uh, it's- But sometimes they're just to burn time. Yeah. Like, there's nothing, like, wrong with that. It's just, like- Anime films like to do that sometimes as well. They just have, like, Mm. just a little shot of, like, you know- Yeah, they're just showing off. On a windowsill or whatever, and, like, steam is wafting off of the teacup or whatever, and it's very pretty outside, and the curtains are billowing by the window. Yeah. That's true. They do like to do that. That's a yeah, like a Ghibli. Uh, Ghibli's big on that kind of thing. Mm, mm. And yeah, you're right. It is a bit show offish to to some degree, isn't it? Which is fine, Douglas. It's a visual oh, medium. Nothing wrong with it. If, you, if you're good at doing it, be my guess. Yeah. You know what? I love looking at stuff. I hate thinking about what's going on in people's heads or trying to figure out like a weird esoteric. Story, but if you want to show me some cool bits of footage with some Bernard Herman over the top, go and say no more. Getting jazzy with it. I'll watch a damn movie. Sure. <laughs> um, I have been very interested in uh, in doing my research for the podcast. I, you know, I we do trivia at the end of the towards the end of the podcast. If you haven't listened to the two five zero before. But I've also been completely digesting this interview that Roger Ebert did with Scorsese in 1976. And um, there's some tidbits that I'll probably go into as we get into the spoiler zone. But um, there's a little passage here that I just want to read out. And it's Ebert saying, The film is dedicated to... Bernard Herrmann, the great movie composer, he died just after he finished the score. Scorsese then responds, God, that was terrible, immediately after. He was so happy, he was back in Hollywood, he had a full orchestra, people were getting down on their knees to it. He was doing some jazz passages and he insisted on finishing that day. I told him we should do it next week because he looked tired. No, he said, let's do it now. That was on December 23rd. The next morning, the day of Christmas Eve, he was found dead. Holy shit. Okay, I didn't realize. I didn't realize it was that soon. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Holy crap. When we say just after he finished the score, I mean just after he finished the wow. score. Wow. Wow. He could feel himself <laughs> slipping away. Yeah. Martin Scorsese is like, let's do it. Let's do it tomorrow. Let's do it next week. And meanwhile, the Grim Reaper is standing behind Martin Scorsese. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, nah, man, I'm going to finish, I need <laughs> to like, finish the that? fucking score, man. <laughs> Look, I can't tell you why, but I got to finish this shit. <laughs> I got to do it right fucking now. Uh, and it is like, while it is a jazzy kind of score, and it is like some of the passages are quite, you know, kind of, yeah, jazzy. It's still quite somber, you know, suitably so for a film and a screenplay like this, but it does have a very kind of melancholy note to it, which I really enjoyed. Well, Douglas, lots of jazz has a melancholy note. What I picked out, and I'm still picking out because we're listening to it right now, is some of it's um, a bit spooky. Some of the music is a bit foreboding. Mm. Listen to phone call. And let me tell you, I don't feel jazzy at all, Douglas. <laughs> I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> Well, that's the aim of the game, baby. Which works. I didn't. I didn't notice this, and it may have been the tried and true Jonathan method for was the sound, the 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 score good in that I didn't recognise it. But if I didn't recognise this at all, fuck, I think I might have felt the effects it was having on me because <laughs> some, sp- some spooky bits in the movie. Feel there's like a some. Bit, there's some bits. A little bit tense and terse. Bits spooky, ooky, Douglas. Mm. Some bits of the movie. Spookiest, ooky. Dare I say, I meant to make you feel. Uncomfortable. Perhaps. While it's doing that, it also fits right in with the overall tone. It didn't stick out at all, which totally. is absolutely what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Passes the, the classic 250 test of if it blends into the to the film itself and kind of gels, then it's a good one. We give it the pass. It's either amazing or it was so go, nothing that- Yeah, yeah. Or or there's like a couple of tracks where you're like, ah, what the fuck is this? What, what am I listening to? Yeah. Mm. He died of a, an apparent heart attack in his sleep, apparently, by the way. Well- um, there are just, worse ways to go, Douglas. Wilder, the fact that he was like, "No, we do it tonight. Like, we have to do it now," and then dies the next day. That's fucking like. Surely he knew something was up. There is this. Um, I think it's heart attacks. Like, I think a a symptom of a heart attack is like a sense of dread. Really, I think. I think. God. Anyway, I'm not going to check that. <laughs> yeah. This is way more. It's way more fun to just not. I, but I think that's the case. So, he might have just been like, I feel like something bad's going to happen. I'm gonna yeah, yeah. This. He got like that kind of spider tingly sense and then was like, well, mm. today's the day. <laughs> Imagine if- <laughs> I just got the worst image. You know, you know, like the cartoons, like the, especially the new cartoons, whenever there's like the spider sense going off, it does like the little, little like bits. flash yeah, around yeah. his head. Yep. I'm just imagining Spider-Man doing this. He goes, wait, what is that? And there's a flash around his head and he just falls dead on- <laughs> just falls off <laughs> of a just- wall. <laughs> Don't give, <laughs> don't give spoilers for the new Spider-Man movie, John. Calm down. <laughs> it just came Child out. Child actors, Douglas. Seen it. Child actors, yeah. We got more of them. Child actors, Douglas. They're back again. Sorry, that- um, I did not realise, and this is embarrassing because it completely skewed the way I saw the film. Didn't realise that Jodie Foster's character was supposed to be 12. She was obviously supposed oh, to be young. No. <laughs> but I was like, oh, she's like, she's like a fresh-faced 18-year-old. <laughs> I was like, Ooh. I was like, it can't be that. That's disgusting. It can't be that. It's disgusting, all right. <laughs> oh, my God. I, um, which once again, uh, definitely meant that I was sort of reassessing the film about three minutes before we started recording. Yep. Uh, and Jodie Foster was actually 14 when she was- Right. Acting in the film as well. So. Right, right, right. Uh, God, it I was weird seen... seeing her, though. Just like, because I'm so used to, like, Inside Man kind of Jodie Foster, you know, like a much more older <laughs> Jodie Foster. Oh, yeah. So, I, I am honestly not certain I've seen any of her new stuff. But she directs two episodes of Orange is the New Black. Yep. And one episode of Tales from the Loop, Douglas, a series near and dear to my heart that I haven't watched, <laughs> uh, but I probably should. Yeah, I don't know. I feel- I just- like, what- do you know her? Have you seen her in some shit? Yeah. Because I feel like- I, I feel like the name was, like, super familiar, and then I was, like, reading her filmography, and I'm like, I haven't seen any of this shit. I know a lot of these films, but I haven't seen any of them. Well- Inside Man was one of my more recent ones, um, which is a dumb movie, which I really love. 
It's mm. one of those so dumb that it's good kind of movies. And uh-huh. I get the sneaking suspicion she was a mainstay in a TV show of some form. Um, oh, and Elysium. She I've did seen her a in lot of TV, actually. I've seen Hotel Artemis as well, uh, which for some reason I didn't log on Letterboxd. That's weird. But She's in Science of the Lambs, Douglas, but I haven't uh, seen nor that. Nor have I, so cannot comment on that one. But yeah, um, just, either way, just very good, solid performance for the age of fucking 14. Mm. Yeah. Really strong performance. I thought she was 19. That's how good the performance was. <laughs> she also doesn't do anything, like, weird and annoying, like, um, what's her name? Uh, Natalie Portman in- Oh, yes. I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. The, it's definitely- uh, what's, what's it called? Um, Leon. Yeah. Uh, it's very much, like, very intentional, the way that she acts in that film, yeah. but it is- off-putting, and this was sort of just like, oh, cool. I don't know. I mean, the, the, the fun thing- felt like a real person. The fun thing about, like, you can make a, a bridge between Leon and Taxi Driver, I guess, from a protagonist perspective. Like, they're both kind of like, woohoo. Um, but you can also make a bridge between Taxi Driver and Leon in the form that Natalie Portman and Jodie Foster, I hope- that they look back and they think about how badass it was that they outacted fucking everyone around them at the age of like thirteen mm. and twelve and fucking fourteen. Like that that's fucking sick. <laughs> it is quite badass. Absolutely. It's very cool. I I also this is the other problem is that I don't know like heaps of other stuff that I've definitely seen some of the Natalie Palmer stuff. I really want to watch Black Swan. Is that on the pod is that's not is that not on the not. that might but not I, be on the but list. But I uh, would love to add it because it is a very fun film. Yeah, we should put on the bonuses. Yeah. I'm really, really interested in it. There was because there are uh, some films that like, popped up in the 250 that have very similar kind of things. Yeah, that- personaish vibes. And there was yeah. another one that we did really recently that was sort of touched on the same kind of energy. It's not coming to me anyway. <laughs> and it's a pretty short film as well. It's only like an hour and a halfish. I'm pretty sure. Hour and 48 minutes. There you go. But it might have really long credits. <laughs> Uh, they said, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, an hour and a half of movie and twenty, 20 minutes, minutes of credits. credits. Superb. I'm, I'm keen. I'm keen to see yeah, that. Like I it. think sort of the that. Oh, it was Perfect Blue. Has a oh, similar yes. vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big which time, you did not. Time, time, which I watched on my own. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so do you want to talk about Taxi oh, Driver yeah. instead of uh, Natalie Portman? What do you think? Uh, do I, would you recommend Taxi Driver to our lovely listeners of the 250, John? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was like actually really surprised at how much I liked this. I think if you I think if you watch this movie and you go, he's literally me, you should seek professional <laughs> help. I even like I was reading like Roger Ebert's thing and he's like, Travis represents a, a feeling we have all felt sometimes. And I'm like, yeah, I don't Does know he Roger? about that. <laughs> <laughs> Does he, Roger? I don't know. I think you're telling on yourself there, Roger. I don't know. Like, I mean, I, his point was a little more nuanced yeah. than that, but I was yeah, still yeah. like, the eh. sense of like chaos and like the, like, um, you know, wanting to fit in. Uh, his point is specifically yeah. that like we, we as normal adult humans have the ability to react to, these kinds of experiences in a more, you know, logical yeah. manner than our dear friend Travis, who absolutely was trying his best, I guess. Mm. Uh, but no, I was, yeah, I was, um, I was ha- pleasantly surprised. Mm. And it is a movie that gives you a little bit to think about. It was the kind of thing like we got to the end of it and like my friends and I were able to have a conversation about like, oh, what do you reckon this meant? And like, what do you think this was saying about it that? Sparked and a conversation. Just very, very naturally. Yeah. It sparked a conversation really yeah. naturally. Whereas we also watched Singing in the Rain and we got to the end of that and went, that was really fun, but did not have any like critical that's, anything to that's work That's very with. interesting. Cause I also, I inadvertently uh, ended up watching, well, I watched Taxi Driver on my own. So I guess I can't. Speak so much for that. But I'm about to sing it in the rain. I mean, that is fitting, yeah. Douglas. <laughs> Very incel vibe. I think you're not allowed to watch Taxi Driver with other That's people, true, actually. Legally. Uh, Singing in the Rain, I, yeah, watched with uh, my parents. And I actually 
felt like I had a lot to talk about. I mean, like, different kettle of fish and given my own context and circumstance and everything else in between, it makes sense that I have more to talk about when it comes to singing in the rain. But more on that next week. Uh, Taxi Driver. I think it's... Travis is up there on my list of protagonists that I really hope no one idolizes. Like, he's on that little mental checklist Mm. that I have where if someone I meet says that they like Taxi Driver or they like Scott Pilgrim versus (laughs) The World... And I go, yeah, but like, which char- who's your favorite character in like all of that? Like, who do you really like? And if, if they say Scott Pilgrim and or Travis Bickle, then I I give them a high five and I walk in the other direction. <laughs> <I just laughs> Wonderful to I meet leave. you. Yes, I will, I will remove myself. I will catch you from later. This situation. Yeah, but that being said, I still think the conversation that is being had here is quite interesting, and there is. I liked Raging Bull and I like Taxi Driver because it does bring this kind of conversation of toxic masculinity and then also like existentialism and stuff like that as well uh, kind of comes into it. It feels like if you took a character, a main character that was designed for like a European uh, Andre Tarkovsky existentialist film and you just dropped him in America and you're like, now what does that kind of guy do in America? And does he become desensitized and distanced and isolated because of, like, his circumstance? Uh, spoiler alert in the uh, opening description of the film. Oh, yeah. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Douglas silently yeah. looks over at his other oh, monitor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. Hmm. Um. Anyway, I do oh. recommend uh, Taxi Driver. I think it's a pretty good watch. Not in my, like, fave Scorsese's, but I'm glad to say that I've watched What other Scorsese have we seen? Scorsese's. Irishman, uh, Raging Bull, Wolf of Wall Street, Shutter Island, Casino. That's it. Yeah, we've seen five so far. I don't know. I almost feel like I like this more just because of the, like, straightforwardness of watching, like, a fucked up little man- <laughs> Just make that's, all the wrong fucking decisions. That's what all Martin Scorsese films are. <laughs> Just well, a fucked up little man making shitty decisions. Uh, speaking of, I really mm. do want to go and watch his new film because it's getting a lot of buzz. Killers of the Flower Ooh. Moon. What's his new film? Um, Shit. Got what Leonardo a Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro in it. And it's uh, based on the real world circumstances of when oil was discovered in uh, Oklahoma in the 1920s under... Native American land. And then right. the Native Americans all get murdered one by one. Very, you know, like, oh, they die. Huh? I, what? Why the Native America? I guess we have to move in on the land now. There's no one there. Yeah. You reckon that Mont Scorsese has it in him to make a film that's like a little, um, like, like, like a little, uh, whimsical, <laughs> maybe. A little bit of comedy, perhaps. Isn't just like- isn't just like here's uh some fucked up yeah. shit that happened. Well, he did Hugo, I guess. But I don't think a lot of people like Hugo. Yeah, it's Hugo's okay. Is that I it? That's <laughs> it. Yep, that's all I'm really getting. Well, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. let's head over into the spoilers. <laughs> spoilers aren't. Oh wait, content oh, warning. Let's let's, honey, we need a content <laughs> warning on this one. Uh, uh so people will get hella murdered in hella. this. Hella, there is a. A main character is a is a twelve year old yep. prostitute. I'll let you guess which one it is. Um, <laughs> Fuck me. Uh, which is not which is not like there's nothing explicit in the film, um, but it's uh, you know dicey content. I think there's like allusions to Travis being like quite racist. Mm. Um, just general like not niceness. Yeah. It's, you know, it's there's like a, a glitzy and glamorous kind of a film. Yeah, it's grimy is sort of what it's trying to sort of communicate. Uh, and uh, deep, deep uh, mental illness, Douglas. Yes. And uh, and uh, and a guy going through some stuff, TM. <laughs> White 20-something-year-old goes through some stuff, TM, mm. and doesn't go to therapy. Goes through some things. Hmm. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 um, if you're going through a hard time, it's probably yeah. not a good movie to watch, yeah. basically. Anyway. Spoiler time. Spoiler. Spoiler. Play it. Siren. <sighs> play it. And we played it. <laughs>
What do you want to start I want to with open with, with this snippet from that same Roger Ebert, Martin Scorsese uh, interview, because I want your reaction, if more so than anything. Okay. Ebert says, uh, he's talking about um, the next film that uh, Scorsese wants to do. And he says, will it take a feminist position? A lot of people embraced Alice doesn't live here anymore as a feminist. Scorsese responds, well, it'll be about the problems of a career marriage. I don't know if it's feminist. Actually, not Alice, but Taxi Driver. This is my feminist film. Who says a feminist movie has to be about women? Alice was never intended as a feminist tract. At the end, she's making the same mistakes. The first shot of her and Chris Chris Cost. Chris Christofferson's house, try saying that name three times fast, shows her washing the dishes, a big close-up. Ebert responds, and Taxi Driver, where the hero can't relate to women at all, is, Scorsese interjects, feminist, because it takes macho to its logical conclusion. The better man is the man who can kill you. This one shows that kind of thinking, shows the kinds of problems some men have, bouncing back and forth between the goddesses and whores. The whole movie is based, visually, on one shot where the guy is being turned down on the telephone by the girl, and the camera actually pans away from him. It's too painful to see that rejection. Interesting. Yeah, I think I- I think I agree with that, and this is why I was saying, like, it was different to what I was expecting. As like a the classic incel movie, like the film is not glorifying no. him in any way, shape, or form. I think you can definitely like like one piece of conversation that came up at the end with my friends was like she was clearly in a bad spot. Iris was clearly in a bad spot, and you know is very young, and you're kind of like, is that? Was that the right mm. thing that he did? I think that's- I think maybe the film maybe even tries to just m- make you ask that question yourself. But I think that, yeah, it basically, as I've said, presents a story of a f- fucked up little man who just cannot- is just completely losing grip totally. with reality. He's just- like I said in the opening, he's just exposed to some of the grimiest parts of New York City. He doesn't sleep. He's an alcoholic, he drinks garbage, he watches porno at a theatre, you know, he is just getting turned down by women and like, oh my God, my favourite, I'm very proud of this. I, we finished the movie and I um and I turned to my friend and I'm like, that was like, what if Rocky was evil? <laughs> 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 He's got uh, the exact same like awkward vibe that Rocky totally. does, but but without the well, and I mean maybe that could even be perhaps a a well, criticism of Rocky. John, I do like to- Rocky's like Jerry- a fucked up little man. And he, and it sort of works out for him. Bring to your attention that Rocky came out in the exact same year as Taxi. Mm, interesting. Well, I'm not saying the one is playing yeah. off the other. Oh, I'm absolutely. just saying that could be a criticism for Rocky Douglas. Because if I if I recall, there's a bit where he gets a bit pushy with his girlfriend, and I remember us coming to the podcast and being like, "That was that was weird, right? Like that wasn't just me." And you're like, "Yeah, that was weird. I didn't like that at all." I'm like, "Okay, I'm on the same page here." Uh so maybe by having him act, like having Travis act like I mean mm. yeah, a bit of a creep to some degree, or at the very least, you know, clearly not someone who totally understands. I think um a lot of the stuff I read, I read the Roger Ebert review actually, and he says that and I I mean I probably could have just picked this up, but I'm a paraphrasing movie dum dum. That he is always trying to, like, save yep. women from their situation. He sort of sees, forgotten her name, Betsy, as in, like, sh- and, and that, that's the thing. Like, Betsy, unequivocally, mm. is totally fine. Yep. She's doing A-OK, you know. And it's it's sort of, yeah, implied that he sort of sees her as someone that needs to be saved as well. Um, which, I mean, I, I guess I didn't initially- I didn't really see that while watching the film, but I can definitely understand that because line of thought. Because he sees, thought. I think, what 
my big takeaway was it's constantly physically uh, physicality versus personality as far as what he's being posed against and both of those two ideals are presented in the form of these women that he tries to chase personality on betsy's side she's surrounded by um very superficial kind of men and she's she solves her problems through politics and through her personality like when travis is kind of vibing outside very distanced looking through the taxi window through the window of the fucking building and watching her at the desk and then when she's like i'm uncomfortable she gets mr man to go out there and be like hey you're blocking the fucking edge get out of here and then travis is like fucking shit and he gets out of there she uses politics to resolve that situation where she's uncomfortable. When mm. Iris realizes that she's being followed and is uncomfortable and wants to reject Travis, she looks to physicality and she looks to, she finds some guy, just a stranger, and she's like, hey, you want to walk with me for a little bit? And then just uses him as like a, a meat shield, effectively, um, to, to dissuade Travis. Mm. And I think that's where the big breaking point for Travis comes from is that he sees these two ideals and he can't belong in either of them. And so he rejects them and he hates them. And then just, yeah, goes on this visceral fucking rampage because he, yeah, just can't find his belonging in uh, either physicality nor personnel. Can't take it. I did, I liked how fucked up mm. the, the ending was. And I, like I also- it's good. Good kahunas. I don't know if this was the intended thing because, like, there's obviously- And then this also came up immediately when I was talking about this with my friends. Like, is- Did he die at the start and basically the epilogue is, like, his imagination oh. or whatever? Or, like, mm. did it actually happen? Because if that's, like- Which is- Which is a- a fun thought, um, but the reason I bring it up is that I was like, oh, he got out of it, you know, basically vigilante justiced a bunch of people and came out the other end, like, you know, with a sort of a slap on the wrist. And there's all these people talking, like, you know, so excited about him and, um, you know, getting praised in the newspapers and stuff. And I was like, is that like a- a criticism of like modern society, maybe like the and oh, this was um, it's like the modernist versus I'm not going. This is like super film wank, but I was watching something talking about modernism and postmodernism and metamodernism, which was not really a concept back then, which is much more. That's much more of like a modern, for want of a better term, yeah, filmmaking style. Whereas like your modernist is like straightforward cowboy movie, the the. Good guy with a big gun who can shoot accurately is the person who like solves the problem, and 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 postmodernist is like shit's fucked up and the world's not that simple, right? And he sort of gets this beautiful modernist film ending where he takes out all the bad guys and like everyone loves him, but it it, it does a toss up differently because of the concept that he uh. He might have fucking beefed it, and that is just completely like a delusion of his. And also, B, once again, um, I did stupidly think yeah. that Iris was an adult. Um, look, man, anyone under the age of 20 <laughs> looks like a child to me. <laughs> yeah, you just don't engage with those types. Um, from that perspective, from that perspective, you're like, She's an adult and she's clearly not in a good situation, but like it's it's it is like taking away autonomy from her. But if she's like when you take into account that she's twelve, you're sort of like, yeah. you know, your like moral core is like bah! maybe mm. it was still the better move, even though It's also it kind of like the- he was just the right force in the right place at the right time. Like it, he he didn't really mm. the fact that you know, sport is there and everything else in between is kind of coincidental to a point. Like, it's- he just happened to be there in his fucking rampaging kind of estate. Um, and with what we're given in the film, he happens to not top himself. But it also, I think, yeah, there is enough argument to be made that he totally does top himself. 
and then mm. lives on in this kind of fantasy that, you know, I'm the hero, I saved her, I, you know, I did the right thing. Um, mm. Which I, I think is ultimately all that Travis is looking for. It's just for someone to be like, you did the right thing. Because he's so childish. Mm. Like, even if yeah, he's, yeah, like, yeah. all the journal entries and stuff throughout the film, like, they don't they don't mean anything. <laughs> like, I was really trying to listen, like, more intently to, like, some of the shit that he, like, spews into that. And I'm like, it does, there's no real substance or anything to take away from it. It's all just childish blabber. So, yeah, to think that he would live on in that kind of, like, fantasy is entirely... Like, that has merit, most definitely. Mm. There is definitely also a, sort of a an aesthetic, for want of a better term, of, like, he's doing all this stuff. He's, like, rigging up all this gear on his body so that he has, like, he's, like, super armed and shit. And it definitely pulls up this sort of mass Big shooter um, energy. Ah, my very quick- my very quick Google has not found if there were any other, like, shootings around mm. Mm. the time that it was sort of- But it would not surprise me. If this Basically, film came out Google's- today, I can almost guarantee that it would have inspired some fucking school shooter or something mm. out there. But it would also be, like, it's obviously a comment on that perspective. I don't think no, school shootings no, are God. that new. Like, obviously, they're not get- they're not getting any better, but- or, like, mass shootings. They're not getting any better, but I don't think they're, you know, a concept from the last 10 years. They've, they've been around for quite a while. Hmm. It's one of, this, is, this is the classic moment in the podcast where Jonathan goes, oh, damn. Should have had that thought <laughs> earlier and then researched it. And now we just it, have to fucking sit And I didn't. And I didn't. <laughs> well, you'll be able to research it afterwards. And, um, now we just have to speculate. Um, Find some peace in that, hopefully. Do you have a shining light moment for this podcast, Douglas? For this movie, rather. I liked the bit where he's making himself breakfast and he tears up bits of bread yeah. and pours sugar and milk on top it's of whiskey, it. And then yeah, I think yeah, whiskey, whiskey. No way. Does he even put sure, milk yeah. on it or does he just pour whiskey yep. on top? Yeah. Yep. And sugar yep. <laughs> out of like yep. a box. Because he's like, a kid. Whoa. He's a kid. This is actually, that's the he's real take. Like a man, baby. <clears throat> like, like. Take number one is that this is evil Rocky. Take number two is that um, this is what happens when you don't get a balanced <laughs> diet. <laughs> <laughs> this is the effects. Uh, get, your, get your fruit and veggies every day, Listen to the food kids. pyramid. Um, I, yeah. I don't think I really have one. I like the shot where he's, he looks in the rearview mirror at the very end there. Oh, that was a cute. Mm. Yeah. That's cool. It doesn't no. have to be something dramatic. It I, I was just, just like, it's just a fun way to end the film. I, like, like, you know, like, gives it that kind of, like, fuck, he's about to fucking snap again kind of ending, which is great. Mm. I like that. There's plenty said about the way that the speed, like, the slow motion sort of, like, dilates. Um, totally. At the end. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty, pretty nifty. And. Yeah. Yeah. Liked it. I agree. Do you like some trivia? Jonathan? Absolutely. Well, here you go. <laughs> I just say, like, one word, and then I'm like, and we're done. <laughs> uh, between the time Robert De Niro signed a $35,000 contract to appear in this film, and when it began filming, he won the Oscar for his role in The Godfather Part Two, and his profile soared. The producers were worried that De Niro would ask for a deserved larger pay raise, since Columbia Pictures were very concerned about the project and were looking for excuses to pull the plug on it. But De Niro said he would honour his original deal so the film would get made. Oh. Bless him. Good on him. Yep. Cool yeah. guy. When Paul Trader was first writing the script, he believed that he was just writing about loneliness. But as the process went on, he realised he was writing about the pathology of loneliness. His theory being that for some reason, some young men, such as Trader himself, subconsciously push others away to maintain their isolation, even though the main source of their torment is this very isolation. Interesting. Which I think is definitely still there are plenty- prevalent in, like, y- you know, Gen Z and millennials to a mm. degree as well. Yeah. That's one for the sociologists in the theatre, in the audience. <laughs> uh, in the theatre. I'm not going to- in the theatre. Uh, 
in the theater. We're, yeah, we're playing this shit live, yeah, we baby. Are. Yeah, yeah, we're we're out here at uh, recording our Discord footage and putting it on film. State theater? No, that's too ritzy a theater. I'm trying to think of a pos- like a plausible theater where we would be able to stage a very scuffed recording of the True Five O. Maybe like nah, Metro Theater is still a bit too ritzy. But stay tuned. I'll find a theater uh, where we can do a shitty. Staging of the 250. Robert De Niro prepared for the role by working as a late-night cab driver in New York City uh, early 1975. One of his fares was a struggling actor who recognised him from The Godfather Part 2. The young actor said to De Niro discouragingly, You just won an Oscar. My God, is it that hard to get work? (laughs) (laughs) That is incredible. Uh, Yeah, like you just saw this guy win an Oscar and he's still fucking driving cabs. Uh, New York's a bitch. Director Martin Scorsese claims that the most important shot in the movie is when Bickle is on the phone trying to get another date with Betsy. The camera moves to the side slowly and pans down the long, empty hallway next to Bickle, as if to suggest that the phone conversation is too painful and pathetic to bear. The shot also showcases his isolation and loneliness, which is what uh, Mm. Scorsese was talking about in that interview. Roger Ebert. I sort of just thought, I was like, man... This is this is this is boring. Let's look at something interesting. <laughs> you don't want to listen to this. Let's look at something more interesting. I I even just thought, just like visually, I was like, oh, this is like kind of kind of cool yeah. to look at. Jodie Foster was twelve years old when the movie was filmed, so she could not do the more explicit scenes. Her character was also twelve years old. Connie Foster, Jodie's older sister, who was nineteen when the film was produced, was cast as her body double for those scenes. Oh, so good. good. Yeah. <laughs> The story was partially autobiographical for Paul Schrader, who suffered a nervous breakdown while living in Los Angeles. He was fired from the AFI, basically friendless, in the midst of a divorce, and was rejected by a girlfriend. Squatting in his ex-girlfriend's apartment while she was away for a couple of months, Schrader literally didn't talk to anyone for many weeks, went to porno theatres, and developed an obsession with guns. Schrader was working at the time as a delivery man for a chain of chicken restaurants. Spending long days alone in his car, he felt, I might as well be a taxi driver. He also shared with Bickle the sense of isolation from being a Midwesterner in an urban centre. Schrader decided to switch the action to New York City only because taxi drivers are far more common. Schrader's script clicked with Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro when they read it. I'm glad that Paul Schrader made it work (laughs) and didn't just turn into a Travis Bickle. Yeah. Harvey Keitel rehearsed with pimps to prepare for his role. The scene where sport and iris dance was improvised and it's one of only two scenes in the film that don't focus on Bickle. Oh, yeah. I do remember that feeling a bit, yeah. bit gross. Well. Almost like they intended yeah, it that way. Yeah, almost like it was improvised on the spot to make it feel more uh, oh. uh, gross. Genuine. <laughs> Genuinely gross. Due to a garbage strike, much of the on-screen filth is real. Love that. Oh, that's cool. Love the little bit of authenticity. Steven Spielberg visited the music recording sessions of this movie to tell composer Bernard Herrmann how much he admired his work. The prickly Herrmann responded, quote, Oh, yeah? Then why do you always use John Williams for your film? End quote. <laughs> Herrmann's serving some shade before he kicks the fucking bucket. Oh, and he's like, you don't even get to you. You missed your sass. chance, motherfucker. <laughs> I'm dead. <laughs> I'm so spiteful. I'm, I'm about to die. Fucking get a heart attack. Fuck you. Robert De Niro claimed that the final shootout scene took particularly long because of both technical problems and the humour which arose from the tension created by the carnage in the scene. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I bet, yeah, on, on the set would have been, like, so overblown. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's funny. So a lot. At the 31st AFI Life Achievement Awards, Jodie Foster credited Robert De Niro with introducing her to the true craft of acting. He would insist that they meet for coffee and rehearse their scenes together at a local diner. After a while, Jodie became bored of the routine until De Niro began improvising lines during their rehearsals. Jodie soon learned to follow his improv as he weaved back and forth to the original script, in essence teaching her how to effectively build a character beyond the screenplay. That's really cool. And I mean... Just as like as clearly he was he was like super into the film and probably wanted it to succeed, but he's, also just like uh, what a what a nice move to be like this young he's actress. He's so passionate. I'm gonna fucking he's help so her out. So passionate about the people around him. Like uh, he's mm. uh, like himself is very passionate about the craft, and he does so much that he never actually shares with an audience. He does so much work mm. underneath. 
everything, every layer that he builds up and we're presented with. There's so much going on underneath all of that. But yeah, to hear that he cares so passionately about all of the other actors and uh, unquestionably cast and crew around him as well. Ugh, yeah, an amazing actor, unequivocally. It's, mm. It has been quite a joy to watch all of these roles that he's played, skipping and hopping our way through the 250. It's... We've seen a fuckload of De Niro. De Niro yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well. Um, that's really all I got. Uh, there's some other fun little bits of trivia on the IMDb page, and by other bits, I mean there's like upwards of 100, so I'm not going to read through all of them. But uh, yeah, go check it out if you want. Yeah. Well, Douglas. Well. But sorry. Well, well audience. Well, <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode I of the, the I was, I was podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you enjoyed hello your audience if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast we put our new episodes Tuesday midnight Australian Eastern Standard Time which comes out to Monday afternoons in Europe and Monday mornings in America Douglas where can people go if they want more oh, info calm on the podcast? down calm down guys the clap track isn't on <laughs> it's not oh no calm down the show's not oh, over wow. we're still here it's okay Holy this bit is terrible. Uh, www.250.com is the best place you can go for a hub of all things 250 related. There's a full list on the homepage there. <laughs> Such a smarmy look. Uh, full list on the website there, uh, all uh, categorized from number 250 through to number one. You can look at what we've already done. Uh, you can look at what's coming up. You can listen to any of uh, the episodes that you might want to check out on the website there. But there's also a link to listen to us on Spotify. Uh, sorry, I turned into Patrick Warburton for a second there. Uh, link to listen to us on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> a link to listen uh, to check us out on Instagram, which is at 250pod, T-W-O-F-I-V-E-O-H-P-O-D. Uh, you can get in touch with us on there as well. Feel free to slip into our DMs. But if you want a more professional uh, form of communication, you can also reach out to us via email. There's a link to send us an email on 250.com as well. But if you just want to bloody do it up right now, it's mail at 250.com. Douglas and I both use Letterboxd, which is a movie tracking and reviewing website that we're great big fans of. My account on Letterboxd is Upa. That is U-U-U-P-A-H and Douglas. My account is Ienzo Knight, I-E-N-Z-O-K-N-I-G-H-T, Ienzo Knight. You can look up Upa, Ienzo Knight or 250 in the Letterboxd search engine and you'll find us. We do written reviews of all the films that we talk about here on the 250 as well as anything else that we watch in our spare time. I got the chance to re-watch Dune. Uh, because my dad was here and he loves Dune. And I've been wanting to get that film in front of him for ages because he like he oh. he's read like all of the books. He loves the series, and I was like, I want to get from like someone who really like lived and breathed the books. What your their take was on the film? I've mentioned it yeah. to him before, and he was just. I think I think he didn't want to because he was so scared because the fucking last one was so like such a head fuck. Yeah, and he's like, oh no. He basically he felt the way that I felt about the last of us, where he's like, no, I'm just not going to take the risk. I enjoy the the book. Yeah, you enjoy your own but head cannon that, version, cool of you it, and then you're like, well, I've mm. already got like a good version of it in my head. Why would I want to watch? Yeah, why would I? Why would I fuck with that interpretation of it? He really enjoyed it. He thought it was really cool. Um, and, like, obviously different to what he had envisioned. For some things, there were other things like the um, uh, ornithopters and stuff like that where he was like, absolutely fuck yes, that's exactly how I would have imagined it. And, like, awesome. small differences between the book and stuff like that that he was able to point out around, like, certain characters getting more screen time and development and other characters not so much. Um, just, yeah, a couple of little differences here and there, which were really fun to, to listen and to hear in on. But uh, otherwise, yeah, I still love it. Um, especially after seeing Lawrence of Arabia, I get such a stronger appreciation for some of the cinematography that's on display um and then even inspiration that herbert would have taken for the novels as well from lawrence of arabia and from everything else in between um i was thinking about it uh who's he what's it duncan is basically lawrence of arabia duncan goes on to uh arrakis to as like ground scouting for the atreides 
um, and he's on there for like a couple of weeks and he basically goes native. He like hangs out with the Fremen and learns their ways and everything and then reports back to Atreides in the same way that Lawrence goes over to Arabia and hangs out with all the Arab tribes, basically goes native and uh, then reports back to the fucking uh, the queen. <laughs> to to the British uh, army. Um, yeah, yeah. I was like, that's a that's a cool little, like, parallel. Um, and just this mm. evening, I got to see Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse in theatres, but I'm not going to talk about it until next week's episode. So, because I want to give it a little bit more breathing room as far as release time. I know people are very conscious of spoilers and whatnot. So, uh, in I wouldn't spoil it anyway, but... In lieu of at, uh, I just I just want to be safe. I want to make sure that I'm not uh, going to say anything, and then people will be like, "Ah, oh, Douglas, why'd you say that?" <laughs> so I will talk about it next week. Did you watch anything, Jonathan? No, <laughs> I mean Douglas. I've been channeling my inner incel yeah. and watching bunch of, a bunch of anime. <laughs> Super. And playing playing a bunch of video games. I played Donut County Douglas. It's about making holes and making stuff fall in it. And I played uh Web. Yes. I might have talked about that last You're week. It's about being guy. a little spider. I played yep. Potionomics. That is actually I thought that was really fun. It's like a some of the best like character writing I've ever seen. And like writing around like relationships in video games I've yep. ever seen, which is fucking awesome. And I watched Joshi Raku, which is an anime about Rakugo, which is like spoken minimalist comedy in- It's like a traditional Jap- Japanese thing where you like- One person plays normally the roles of two people and the only way that they distinguish- And they like play out a conversation. And the only way they distinguish is they'll like turn their head huh. like to the left or to the right. And they have, I think, a towel and a yeah. fan- as props and that's it it's like that that wow. is the way that it is done and then joshiraku is like sort of based on that although it is quite silly and i watched bocce the rock which is about a girl who is having trouble making friends so she gets really good at playing guitar and starts a band or sorry gets sort of stumbles her way into being in a band and that th- they've been some of the more interesting things that I've watched recently. I, I've uh, I've been having fun. Not watching movies though. That's okay, baby. I look at Letterboxd and I'm like I'm like I'm not gonna put two hours aside. That's fair enough. But I will watch two and a half hours of anime. Well great. Well okay. goodbye now. I should I should watch I should watch a movie next time so that I've actually got something to talk about. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um thank you for listening in to this episode of the podcast. <laughs> I thought you forgot the name of the show for a second. <laughs> like, I saw your eyes to, dart uh, over it, and I was like, to the, uh... It's a, uh what's it called again? The, uh... The 502? <laughs> yeah, there's, like, there's, like, four 420 movies or something. <laughs> I don't know. See you next time. Have a good Ciao, time. ciao. Ciao. Douglas really wants to really cut this off, and I think, Bye-bye. uh...